This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Vincent Harding and Phyllis Tickle. Vincent Harding founded the National Council of Elders and is chairperson of the Veterans of Hope Project at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. Phyllis Tickle founded the Religion Department at Publishers Weekly and is a renowned Christian writer and scholar. I spoke with them over the span of two days, August 9th and 10th, 2013, at the Wild Goose Festival in Hot Springs, North Carolina. Our conversation on the first day included the rapper Speech from the hip-hop group Arrested Development. You can download the MP3 of the produced show with Vincent Harding and Phyllis Tickle at onbeing.org. We're ready. There we go. (laughs) Okay, we have to pack a lot of wisdom into about... 35 minutes. Um, when Gareth invited me to do this session, he said he wanted me to be the Barbara Walters <laughs> figure to Phyllis Tickle and Vincent Harding and now to speech. So I'm going to do my best, but it's really not my mode. Um, it is such an honor and a pleasure and a thrill to be here in this gorgeous place. And I think I just, we're, uh, I should say that we're going to be taping this and some other events these next two days um, and that will possibly become radio shows. So I'm going to break in every once in a while and do an ID, a segment ID as we call them. How are we? Yeah. All right. Um, And I think I want to just leap in, give a brief introduction and pull as much from these wise people for the next half hour as we can. Vincent Harding was a is a father of the civil rights movement. Um, he followed that movement to Atlanta, helped co-found the Mennonite House there, which was a heart of the philosophy and practice of nonviolence. Uh, a word that Vincent uses a lot about other people is magnificent. He calls Jesus a magnificent madman. And Vincent Harding is a magnificent human being. He wrote a really important book uh, called Hope and History, and if you've never, in the 90s, and if you've never seen it or heard of it, I encourage you to read it. He started the Veterans of Hope Project at Iliff Seminary in Colorado, and he has spent the recent decades since the Civil Rights Movement bringing the lessons and legacy of what was learned there, spiritually as well as politically, to young people in the contemporary United States. And although Vincent and I had a beautiful, intimate interview, we've never met in the flesh, so I just was able to hug him for the first time. Um, Speech is somebody I have only recently met last night. Um, I'm only meeting him in the flesh and in conversation for the first time. Um, Born as Todd Thomas, better known as Speech, a songwriter, producer, and ordained minister. He's the frontman for the Grammy Award-winning hip-hop group Arrested Development. They produced the singles Tennessee, People Every Day, and Mr. Wendell. And he performed here last night, gratefully, in the rain. He's performed for Bill Clinton and Nelson Mandela, and he's performing here this weekend for for all of us. Um, Phyllis Tickle was best known when I first met her over a decade ago as the, as the person who had really created the religion department at Publishers Weekly. Um, but something I always also loved about Phyllis was even though she was doing this lofty work in New York City, her permanent address was always the farm in Lucy. Phyllis Tickle, the farm in Lucy, Tennessee. She's a writer and thinker in her own right on prayer and liturgy and theology. 
And in the cathartic autumn of 2008, she published a sweeping book about the past and future of society and Christianity, which was called The Great Emergence. Now, out of the corner of my eye over this past decade, I've watched Phyllis become what I've thought of as the mother superior of the emerging church movement. I don't know. Is that a title you would claim? I would love it, but I have no right to it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So, um, you know, I like to start all my interviews with origins and beginnings. And I I don't know that we have that so much time for that here. um, I think I want to leap right into uh, what's what your, some of your passions are now, what you're working on in the world now. If you have a way to weave in this, the, the earliest spiritual background of your childhood into that, you know, where you came from to get to where you are now, do that. But we don't have much time. Um, Phyllis, I was, I, I, your book is so brilliant. And um, what I think is so important is you have framed your understanding of this moment in the life of the Christian church, of Christianity as a religion. Um, you've grounded your sense of that in um, a sense of the cathartic moment we inhabit in all of our disciplines, in all of our endeavors, as societies, as individuals. And you call that the great emergence. Um, and you talk, when you talk about the, the, the emerging church within that, as you, you know, that you began to see something that you call the gathering center. It's a new center. It doesn't look anything like the old center looked. So I'm just curious, tell us a little bit about what you started to see, what, what you saw, what that looks like, and how you've watched that emerge. Well, to, first of all, I have to be a little honest. Um, thank you for the accolades, but I must confess that uh, there's not much original thinking on my part. It was a matter of putting together um, the, the patterns. Uh, the insights have all got uh, academic roots way back. Uh, I can, I'm, I'm a, a recovering academic. It's a condition you never get over, but, but I am. And I have to have five footnotes for everything I say. Uh, it's like going naked in New York City. You just don't do it. Um, and and so, so I have to have five footnotes. So uh, much of what, what The Great Emergence as a book really was, um, was a, an assembling, if you will. Uh, of the ideas of other people. Uh, the Roman church, for instance, began to teach this whole idea in 1970 as part of its catechesis. Um, you can go back to 1907 in Rauschenbusch, where he clearly says, we're back into Reformation again. Yeah. But because it's cynical, I know, but there is a certain authority to the cash register. Uh, I truly believe in the cash register. And when people start spending money for stuff, it tells me that there's something serious here. And when the books began to go in in the early 90s, in the mid-90s, and religion suddenly became, and you remember this, the bestsellers, then all of a sudden, Publishers Weekly, the trade journal, uh, needed coverage of what was happening because there had been no religion department. And in doing the religion department work, it dawned on me, there is something serious happening here. We really are in a shift um, and we had been told that by, mm-hmm. by other people. Uh, Joan, but jo- that, Joan Chittister said people started to get their church off the shelf. That's right. They got yeah. their church off the shelf. Absolutely. Um, we, have, we Episcopalians have a, a wonderful bishop, Mark Dyer, who in 1992 started saying, if you want to know what's happening in the church in the world today, you have to understand that every 500 years we feel compelled to have a giant rummage sale, and we're having one. Uh, and I, you know, I, I've used his metaphor so many times that now he insists that I give him credit instead of just using the metaphor. <laughs> 
um, you know, but, but he's absolutely right. So tell, but it's tell, exciting. The thing yeah. is, it, it's more exciting um, to be in what we're in right now. Um, I would not have liked 500 years ago with the Great Reformation because you could get burned at the stake for right. saying half the things I think before right. I even say them, you know. A right. uh, thousand years ago, not so good. You couldn't decide which language to argue in. 1,500 years ago, it really stank. The emperor was gone. Rome was gone. 2,000 years ago when it all shifted, and men of great renown and insight like Harvey Cox are now saying, and I think that's what we need to hear, is that this one, the great emergence, and I, it's not my name, obviously it was named, but the, but the great emergence that we're going through is analogous more to 2,000 years ago when everything shifted. The thing we're living in now is deeply exciting, deeply threatening, and a wonderful opportunity in every way because we know we know where we are. Those who preceded us didn't know. We know. Thanks to folks like you, we know we're in it. Uh, and we have the opportunity and the education with which to prayerfully navigate this stream. Hmm. It's an important time. Hmm. It's a great time to be alive if you don't think about it. <laughs> right. Um, Vincent, um, something that you, I believe, have been especially become especially passionate about i don't know if this has been true forever but i know recently you're um really concerned about the opportunity we have now in this country perhaps to grow up as a democracy your idea that that in fact without realizing it we are a developing nation when it comes to living in a multiracial, multi-ethnic and multi-religious society um I wonder how you think about what a robust Christianity has to offer that kind of moment and that kind of task. Krista, I am still recovering from the joy of seeing you in person for the first time. (laughs) That's a way to stall. Okay. But it's not quite a stall, and I am drinking in the beauty of being with my son and co-worker here, and what's on my mind is very close to what Sister Phyllis is talking about. I think that we are at a point where we may be ready as people of the churches to take seriously the calling that's in the prologue to the Constitution, which says very clearly that our main job as we the people of the United States, our main job is not to compete with China, not to give Russia another blast from our great horns, and certainly not to teach anybody else what democracy is. 
but that our main job is to create a more perfect union, to develop within this country a recognition that we have been, as Brother Speech and his group reminded us a long time ago, the 90s is a long time ago. <laughs> yes, it is. Yep. That we are, in a sense, in a state of arrested development as a country. We began in a state of arrested development as a country because we began talking about establishing freedom and democracy and at the same time built into our constitution mm -hmm. the protection of human slavery. Yeah. We built arrested development yeah. into our very beginnings. And it is a wonderful opportunity now for the people of God who say again and again, the truth will set us free. It is a wonderful opportunity to live that out and to go after that truth about who we really are, about where we really are, and about where we need to go. So I see the church trying to speak the truth, not a patriotic truth, but a compassionate, truthful truth about the country and thereby helping the country, Krista, to become more fully the place, the people, that the Spirit of God would have us be. One other thing that I want to say about what the people of God might be called upon at this moment is to stop and maybe uh, after my son goes off on his journey uh, later on today, uh, Phyllis and I could talk a little bit more about this with you. I think one of the other things that the people of God have to look at is what is the difference between the emerging church in America and the emerging population in America? And how do those match or not match and why? And if they don't match, what is this emerging church all about? All of those things seem to me things that the people of God should be wrestling with now, not simply feeling good about itself, but feeling, my Lord, this is what God gives me to do? Can I really take this on? And the answer is yes, we can take it on. God would not give it to us if we couldn't take it on. So I want to be encouraging to us to take on all these truth-telling, truth-being tasks uh, that will help us to create 
a better country and a better world. Speech, we, we only have you today. We'll, the two, three of us are going to be again, back again tomorrow. So this is our chance um, to hear from you. I, I did say to Gareth when you were added to this panel that you're not quite an elder. Although it's no, true, true that for my 15-year-old son, the 1990s was a long time ago. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and Vincent said, we will anoint you a, an elder in training. <laughs> that's, that's great. I'll take that. Thank okay. you. Um, <laughs> I've read that you, that you describe yourself growing up in Milwaukee as an angry young black man. And I believe you converted to Christianity in 1996. Is that right? And you were already a musician. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Well, tell us a little bit about what happened. What... Well, as far as the angry black man part, I think what Vincent just shared really is, the, is the, the key of it. You know, you start to notice as a young black person the differences among your race and, and other races, and you start to ask questions why. And as you start studying and understanding the history um, of the country, and Vincent really did a great job at explaining the, the, the hypocrisy and the, the two sides of what was going on, I think um, the anger starts to set in when you see the differences. And as you develop as a human being, and especially as a spiritual being, you start to um, channel the anger into love. And you figure out a way to love stronger and to love more and therefore channel your activism, you channel your passions, you channel your your, um, indignation to an energy of love and find out ways to change things. And so even in the beginnings of my musical career, um, I started doing gangster hip hop because that's what all of my peers were doing. And I quickly realized with my upbringing, with my parents being in the civil rights movement in the 60s and with all of that that they instilled in me, but also just my own spirit and what I believe God had called me to do, that that was not my calling, gangster rapping, and that I needed to do something that felt like it was truly where I was supposed to be. And the music that Arrested Development would then create was really based on that that conviction and um, it was music that was set to expose the problems that exist but also add another component to it and that's talk about some solutions and really focus on solutions instead of just focusing on problems you know in the hip-hop community we have many oral traditions in hip-hop and one of them is groups like NWA and the West Coast would speak about F the police. And they would speak about gang life in Los Angeles. And people that didn't ever visit Los Angeles never really understood the extent of violence and the extent of gangs that was going on there. And they were able to expose those things in the music. They were able to talk about police harassment in the music. But they only told the problems. And they they rarely, if ever, gave any solutions. And we have that tradition in New York where groups like Public Enemy in the hip-hop realm where they talked about 
how nine, uh, you know, nine one one is a joke is one of their songs, and it was talking about how people. Uh, and the black community could not rely on the system to protect them or to save them in a health situation the same as someone in their neighboring community might uh, be able to expect. Those types of injustices were brought about or spoke about in hip-hop music. That's a tradition. One of the first hip-hop records was called The Message by a group called Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five. And that song talked about sort of the stark realities of living in New York and living in the ghettos in particular, and the pressures that it brings about in that situation. And um, these oral traditions are always present and have always been present in hip-hop, but what I feel that we made a decision to do and add to that tradition was to speak about solutions and strive to be a solution-oriented force in music. You know, um, yeah... Vincent, when you and I spoke um, a couple years ago, you talked about the civil rights experience of music and how there was this experience of, of everything political that went on and marches and bus boycotts and all that, but there was this pivotal experience right in the middle of it of, of those who sang the way to freedom, that music was right at the heart of that and was part of the force. And I... I wonder, I mean, a kind of speech as I hear you speak about how you think about what you do, that there's a sense in which maybe you, you enter that lineage in a, in a very 21st century way, not the same kind of music, not the same kind of message, but seeking the same kind of force. Without a question, I think, you know, hip-hop is an amazing music form because unlike many other genres of the ages, hip-hop is very much um, dependent upon older music. Its very existence, you know, in hip-hop we sample, especially in the beginnings of hip-hop, we sample music from the past. And so our musical backdrop already had within it the energy of the last poets or it had within it the energy of Sly and the Family Stone or James Brown or Bob James or Aerosmith or you name it, Interwoven within the very existence of the music was in some way or another a homage to those that came before us. At first it was met with resistance because we didn't know how to play instruments and so those that played instruments felt like it's not real music. But I think as the music continued to press forward, most people gained an understanding that it was an understanding of the past generations and the various things that they contributed musically, and not just musically, but spiritually and politically, those things were built upon in hip-hop um, with, with that being our music bed, and then us bringing other ideas and new ideas that sort of built upon what they did. Do either one of you want to add anything to this? or? Vincent, I I think he's absolutely right, and you're right, too, about lineage. It's always the music. It's always the music that carries... uh, The the Reformation was new theology 500 years ago, right? Brand new theology to people who couldn't read, duh. So, you know, what do you do? There's no broadcast, there's no Krista Tippett, you know, and we can't read books. What do we do? We write hymns, right? Then all it takes is one man in every little village who can carry a tune and read. 
and we take that dadgum printing press and we turn out a thousand copies of A Mighty Fortress is Our God and we disseminate them. And all of a sudden, it's always been the music. And as I laugh and tell audiences, if you don't know it's the music, you don't understand, you don't understand, you don't understand, you don't understand. One more praise song and I'm going to kill somebody. But, but uh, it, uh, it, it's the music. Uh, I love what you're saying. I just love what you're saying. I, I hope I get a, a disc of what you just said because I've never heard anybody do it quite so brilliantly and beautifully as what you just did. Um, but yes, yeah. it's... It's a fool. One of the things the church has, forgive me, one of the things the church has failed on, as far as I'm concerned, as we go through this time, is they're still playing organ music. Excuse me? Uh, You know, uh, and Bach's great. Uh, There's no problem. But what you said about, so take Bach and bring him here. Take Handel and bring him here. You know, what is the, the, I don't know, hallelujah chorus look like? Well, let's leave that alone. That's a sacred one. Forget that one. You can do whatever. But, but what is, when do we begin to do exactly what you're talking about and do it in church? You know, yeah, short I, of, you, you, may, you may have to shoot a lot of church organists to do it, but, but yeah. I think it's important. And from a spiritual standpoint, I, I look at what Jesus talked about as far as being shrewd as snakes Absolutely. And innocent as doves. And um, I think that there's something that we all can continue to dig out of that as God-fearing people. I, you know, for me personally, there's a conference that I'm holding next month in Atlanta that I'm passionate about. You spoke about what we're all passionate about right now. And that's one of the things. And I invite everyone to come down and join us. But it's called Shrewd. And... Um, the whole premise of the conference is just what you said, striving to um, be more shrewd as managers of the gospel to this generation that is developing in the various ways that people develop and finding ways to be more shrewd as we strive to um, bring the light to people. So, so you know, as a, as a parent... Um of a son who really loves hip-hop. I have this mixed experience because, uh, you know, sometimes he'll actually say to me when the radio is on, he'll say, Mom, turn it off. You're, you're too, this is, you can't hear these lyrics, right? You're too tender. You're too innocent. <laughs> but my, ex- my experience of that music, and as he and his friends carry it around, is that it goes all the way through their bodies and there's something really beautiful and powerful and humanizing about that that's quite separate from the lyrics. Um, and I, I'm bringing that up. We just have a few more minutes because the, the theme of this, of this festival is remembering the body, which I was hearing as remembering, recalling. There's, a, there's actually a capital L in there in remembering, remembering. So we can interpret this a few different ways. But I think this... Subject of music. I mean, you said people didn't have instruments, but you had your voices and you had your bodies, and that's what we've all always had. Um, I wonder, just as we finish this session, maybe if the three of you would each reflect a little bit on what that phrase, remembering, remembering or remembering the body, means to you in this kind of evolutionary moment. Um, Sure. Um, I think what it means to me, and especially in context of what we're speaking about today, is remembering the power 
that each of us have through God and through his spirit to once again revolutionize the world. You know, in Acts, it talks about how the apostles were able to turn the world upside down and um, how the gospel was, being, was able to be preached throughout the world. And I think that it's important to remember that within our bodies is a spirit of revolutionary, uh, of a revolutionary. And um, with that, that there's less fear and more faith that we can accomplish bringing light to the world, that there is um, a power within us and that it's important for us to remember that power. I'd like to say something as well, Krista. Uh, I think that it is so important to remember that what the music of the movement did was to urge people not to sit and be entertained by musicians, but to create music themselves and to speak of their longing, their urging, their determination through the music, including the music of the past. And I would like before, sometime just before we finish, to bring a song that we might sing together. Because it seems to me that there's no point having a group like this and not singing together. (laughs) Songs that can be sung from children to grandparents. So I'd like to make that my response to your question about the song. We will. I need to do my radio thing. Okay, do your radio thing. (laughs) I'm Krista Tippett. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I'm outdoors today at the Wild Goose Festival in Hot Springs, North Carolina, with civil rights leader Vincent Harding, theologian Phyllis Tickle, and hip-hop artist Speech. Wild Goose is a Celtic Christian metaphor for the unpredictable spirit of God. This is a multi-generational gathering around music, justice, spirit, and art. So Phyllis, just as we get to you with this question of the body... I was doing great with his idea of singing. But well, we okay. will. We'll do that. We'll sing. We'll, we'll sing to end. I'm real, I've really become aware, having grown up Protestant in the middle of America, yeah. that Western Protestantism really disconnected us. It's, yes. It was a chin-up experience, right? You it sit was. in an uncomfortable pew and listen to a monologue. Yes. yes. Where religion in human history for those 2,000 years, you know, this was a cathartic place yes. where you are singing and dancing Absolutely. and weeping. And, and, and people are sometimes having to go outside their churches to rediscover that in yoga studios or art classes or, you know, the different places right. we're getting it. Or just listening to Pandora. Um, <laughs> so I just offer that to you as an Episcopalian. Yes. <laughs> um, we couldn't decide which side of the road to drive on. So, you know, that's, that's who Episcopalians are. <laughs> so re- but it's a good place to be, okay? So remembering the body. Yes. What is, what is, and what is the challenge of that, as you see it, in this yeah. great emergence of society uh, and church? One of the characteristics of, of emergence Christianity, wherever you find it, in this country or abroad, wherever you find it, one of the 
principal characteristics is that it's deeply liturgical by, and deeply incarnational. Those are the two. And they mean essentially close to the same thing. Um, and that is that I, when you get my age, you do a lot of endowed lectures, okay, because they don't know what else to do with you. Um, and, and so I do a lot of those. And every time I'm on a college campus or a, a university campus, at least three young folks say to me, independent of each other, I don't want a, a faith that I can't feel in my body. Uh, this, and they will do this. The wearing of scapulas by Roman uh, Catholic young people just astonishes me when I see them, you know, under the shirt. Um, so it's a, it's a feeling that we are one thing. We're not body here and spirit here and mind there. We are, this is, this is us, the whole thing. And therefore, I have to, my body has to believe in Jesus Christ. Right. It's not enough that my mind does. I'm also really aware, we, we, We've narrowed, when we talk about Christianity in American culture, it's what you believe, right? And, and it's not it's what you not believe, for, it's who you are. It's and who, that includes it's who how you, you move through the world it's physically. It's what you eat and how you breathe. You better believe it. Yeah. It's all me. And, and, and while, while we're doing remembering, can I say, remembering, may I say one more thing? That, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a jump from where we are now. The minute I hear remembering the body, I also jump to the fact that there are many Christianities and we in this country forget that. There are many Christianities. And one of the things we have to do now is to begin to engage other forms of Christianity around the world. North American Christianity, Caucasian Christianity, ain't where it's at, boys and girls. Uh, you know, it's, it's just not. That's right. And the minute we do that, we have to recognize there are also many canons. I'm going to get blasted off the stage, so I'm so- saying it really quickly. There are many canons, all right? Each of those forms of Christianity has a slightly different canon for from what we've got, we've got to look at what we are as the church universal and, uh, and do it now. It isn't going to wait. And when we do, one of the first questions is going to be, what is the nature of Scripture? Because whatever else it is, Scripture is the word of God given to us. That's what we've got. It's, you know, it is. And we have to decide if perhaps we left some things out. Uh, in the West uh, that should not have been left out, which goes back to much more embodiment or incarnational when you get into some of the other canons uh, of, of Ethiopian, for instance, church. And or, yes, so I'm through. I'll hush <laughs> for now, for right now, because the clock says I We'll have see to. you again tomorrow morning and Vincent and speech. I'm sorry okay, so here. how are we going to sing? How are we going to finish like, this? I'd like to introduce the song. Yes. All right. Oh, yeah. oh forgive me. I'm sorry. So yes. We're going, to take, we're, we're going to take five more minutes and okay. sing, or maybe ten. No, not very long song because it's a very hot sun coming up. But it's a song that comes from the poorest people that this country knew the enslaved Africans who were in places like this and who created some of the most beautiful music that the country has ever known. And what we did during the movement is to remember that the poorest people can create the most beautiful things, contrary to conventional ideas. I'd like to invite you to sing a song that was created using now some different words for 2013. And 
being foolish enough to think that I could help you sing when I've got my son and coworker here who needs to help me sing. So maybe we will all help each other sing. What I want to suggest for the singing of each, with each other is the music that goes to We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder. Many of you know that music. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. We are climbing Jacob's. Okay, great, great, great. Wonderful. Only what we're going to sing with each other, for each other, and for the world is we are building up a new world. We are building up a new world. We are building up a Builders must be strong. Builders must be strong. We are building up a new world. We are building up a new world. We are building up a new world. Builders must be strong. There are two more standards, but you'll wait till tomorrow to get them. <laughs> Thank you. Wow, that's great. <laughs> Thank you for coming. This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. Now the second half of my unedited conversation with Vincent Harding and Phyllis Tickle. Well, and um, cohesion. Are we on? I guess we are. Yeah, we're on. Good morning. It's so nice and cool this morning. Okay. Um, I'm thrilled to be back up here with two of my heroes, Vincent Harding and Phyllis Tickle. And let's just plunge right in. I would like to start with a question that Vincent proposed yesterday, a place we should go. I'm sorry, speech. (laughs) That won't do for radio. Um, Okay. um, I'm sorry, speech isn't with us, but but we we had the pleasure of his company. Um, So, Vincent, you said you'd like us to reflect on the connection between the people of God between this church that is emerging and the emerging population. So I just want to invite you to flesh out that question, draw it out, and, and give us some of your reflections. I think that I want to start out Some people are saying they can't quite hear me. Yeah, I'm not. Is the yeah. mic on? We're having trouble back there. Can you Can you still not hear him? No. Try again. How is the mic going? Yeah. How is the no. mic going? It doesn't sound like it's on. No mic is. Yeah. It comes for us. Oh, it is? 
Yeah. Can we turn it up then? Yeah. Yeah. So Vince, why don't you talk some, just say anything. The man has asked me to talk and just say <laughs> anything. <laughs> And I don't like to just say anything. It just feels, it's not as hot, his mic, it's not as hot. How old is it going in back? Yeah. Okay. Now we can start over. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so the connection between the people of God, the emerging church, the emerging population... I am very conscious, both as an 82-year-old citizen and as a sometimes historian of the American society, that we are involved in deep and powerful change and also aware as simply a human being that change is frightening to many of us and so frightening we forget that without change there is no life and so we forget that trying to keep from change is trying to keep from living and growing and developing. And when I hear of the emerging church, I put it in my mind and in my heart together with the emerging American nation that is less and less overwhelmingly white. And I ask myself, how shall an overwhelmingly white emerging church engage itself with the children of God in America who are coming from a different grounding. And where does the connection begin for us to think in new ways about who the people of God are? and who the children of God are, and who we are, and what we are for. Those kinds of issues seem important to me, Krista, to put our arms and our hearts and our minds around and to push our fears as far away as we can so that we can enter into those questions. You made the mistake 
of asking me to start off. So let me just say one other kind of thing that for me is very important right now. I am, as I mentioned yesterday, very aware of the fact that we have been involved in this country now for almost 300 years of our history. A history of 300 years in which white domination and the dispossession of the natives of the land and the enslavement of the African peoples of the land have been built into our life. And it is so important for us to recognize that it's only been about 50 years that we have even begun to say in the church, outside of the church, any place that we want something different, that we want a new society, a society that is built on really loving concern for each other, a multiracial society, a compassionate, peace-loving, and peacemaking society. We've only said that to each other in a large way for about 50 years. So we've got 50 going up against 300, and I think... It is terribly important to keep saying to us, it is important to keep saying to ourselves, we have work to do. We have work that is not impossible, but only possible when people recognize the work and recognize the time span in which we are living and recognize that we are basically still learning. We are, where multiracial democracy is concerned, we are a developing nation. We are not experts. We do not know what multiracial democracy really means, as we can see just by looking around us. Therefore, we come together in a different kind of spirit, the spirit of seekers, the spirit of learners, the spirit of supporting each other. And I think that a church that emerges in that kind of spirit with that kind of consciousness, with that kind of agenda, will have a different future than a church which does not. There is all I have to say. <laughs> um, so I feel like you put words to some important realities that are part of this dynamic. and. And one thing is naming fear, which is very often inarticulate and unaware of itself, which manifests as denial or uh, aggression. Um, And yet, as you also noted, uh, 
this status quo is it's not just a way of thinking and it's not it's often not active right it's not an active stance it but it is however embodied it's embodied in our communities it's this way of of being uh is is in the way we've all moved through the world it's in the world we've known i think that's such an important thing to name um what you also did, Vincent, is you posed some questions about how Christians might take up this problem, this reality, this challenge, which are very different from the way this discussion gets framed in our culture, right? You know, what I'm aware of, especially recent, recently, is we take up the subject of race and of difference at extremely fraught moments, right? Like the trial of George Zimmerman. Yes. We, what, we don't know how to take up this huge exploration in an active way as an ongoing thing. So I just want to, you know, and I think I want to probe further and, and also pull Phyllis into this as a, as a white woman of the Deep South. Right? Well, I, what I wanted to do, yeah, I, I yeah. totally agree with what Vince just said, except I want to say, you know, the last 50 years... Um, it's not just uh, race. The dominance was uh, white male straight, uh, and uh, and we need to we need to put the the whole thing. The whole pot is boiling, and I know you meant that. But to just put it on on race, and also uh, the disabled. Uh, I just received this a minute ago. Some of you saw um, who also have been marginalized in many ways, and who uh, in in the last fifty years are coming into their own. So what we're talking about, I think Vince is absolutely right, is, um, is, is a society in upheaval. I think you are also up uh, very, very right, uh, that we're not uh, perhaps as informed as we should be. But the point that you made that I'd really like to go to first is that much of what, if we're, if we're not careful, and I think this is what Vince is saying also, if we're not careful, we're going to end up making social policies and political policies that any good secular uh, humanist would make, any good atheist would make, uh, simply because it makes social sense. Mm-hmm. It does not make political sense to keep somebody suppressed. It just doesn't. Uh, it's too expensive. It doesn't make sense to leave the homeless out in the street. It costs more to care for them in emergency. If we're going to be just cynical about it, right. it costs more to take care of them after they've caught pneumonia or whatever it is than it would have cost to house them in the first place. Uh, so, And that's good communist thinking. That's good uh, socialist thinking. That's good agnostic thinking. We're Christian. Uh, and if we're Christian, we have to go at it from the Christian point of view. We don't have to enforce that politically. Yeah. Right. We so have what to be is really the Christian sure exploration, that- right? So how does the, how does the Christian exploration of this reframe what's at stake and what's to be worked on okay let me do you want to take that no no keep going see he was a smart man he went first before he gave it to the women so he could say what he wanted to say (laughs) you're not going to get away with that brother (laughs) Let, let, let me go way back okay uh there is a thing Emerging church or emerging Christianity is only one division of what's happening. And I think to talk about it uh, is to, to ob- ob- obscure some of the other. Let's do it this way. 500 years ago, there was this thing that came out of Roman Catholicism, and it was called Protestantism, right? And we all know what it is. We can all sit here, and we can define what a Protestant is, right? 
But we also recognize that they're Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterians and Lutherans and, you know, all of God, 37,000 distinct divisions under that rubric of Protestantism. There really are, 37,647, I think, according to the World Yard. They're all Protestant. They share a set of sensibilities, all right? But they are distinct amongst themselves. Emerging church is one thing. Emergent, G-E-N-T, is another thing. They're not the same. Neo-monasticism is another thing under this rubric, uh, but it's not the same. The hyphenateds are a distinct group under this rubric. They have shared sensibilities. There are about eight or nine divisions of emergence Christianity or emergence, G-E-N-C-E, church that you can now uh, say are different. Small church is different. Cyber church is distinct now and distinguishable. I suspect convergence church is going to be very shortly, if not. So what we have to do is what Vince was doing is look at the sensibilities, the overarching. Instead of saying, what's the emerging church going to do? The question is going to be, what's going to be the attitude of emergence Christianity as we all come together. And if you look at the bulletin here, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, neo-monastic, right? That's a division, and and I hope all of you went to hear him because he's dynamite. Uh, So many of the divisions are here, but we don't need to scramble eggs in order to serve breakfast here. Uh, We need to be sure that that we've got distinctions in what we're talking about. So emergent sensibility needs to be definitely Christ-centered. The, the miracles he did, the action he took, or the actions he took, were all done with a loving concern for the victim, whoever the victim was, but with enormous ability to speak out to those who had victimized. And one of the things that frightens me about what we're doing... One of the things a secular humanist is not in general going to be concerned about, if you can generalize, he will help the victim or she will help the victim without overarching concern for the state and well-being of the victimizer. Uh, and I think the Christian call is to be concerned. I sound like Rene Girard, don't I? You know, I, and I'm sorry. Uh, but, but, no, I'm not sorry. I wish I were that bright. Uh, but I'm not sure it, everyone knows who Rene Girard is. So. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, it's okay. <laughs> You'll live a happy life and never know. Uh, but, <laughs> it's, it's nerds like me that are concerned because we're not bright enough to figure it out for ourselves, so we get a Kindle edition of Girard and figure it out. But the, the ability to be concerned for the victimizer. Um, because he or she also is, and you made this point, Kristen, is to a large extent also the victim of the society which we, which we are. Uh, it's not as if anybody goes around, gets up this morning and say, boy, I'm going to be prejudiced this morning. We don't do that. You know, we get up and we groan and we brush our teeth and we think I'm going to go forth and do. Uh, and it's only as we become informed, as in here, uh, about what's going on around us and about the very things you're talking about, about the great emerge, our emergence society or whatever you want to call it, that we become able to understand the Christ call to both the victim and the victimizer. And I'm going to shut up because I'm repeating myself now. And that's boring. Vincent, I'm bored when I repeat myself. You know, Vincent, I'd love, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. What is the that? <laughs> well, oh, you're good. <laughs> the the idea that part of a distinctively Christian, religious, faithful approach to this quandary would be about a different kind of 
care, care, caring attention to the victimizer. I mean, it's true that in our political yeah. life, our social life, this could turn. Gets, this is a discussion you probably about. Probably can't do it. It's a discussion about racism. Yes, right? that's and right. then you're on one side of that, or you're, or, or you're not. Um, and this is a different way of think, coming this, yeah. at it. And, and it really can't be politicized or social, which is where it separates it from atheism in many ways. I think the obvious approach to the question would be that there is no way to be serious about following Jesus without calling for concern and compassion for the enemy. But Immediately as I say that, I am pushed to urge all who claim to be followers of Jesus to jump as quickly as possible from making that simply a personal kind of story to asking, and what does that have to do with the enemies in Afghanistan and all over the world that we have declared enemy? Do we want to deal with them in compassion as well? Or do we want to do them in? as quickly as we possibly can. I think that we've got to keep these conversations in conversation with each other Mm -hmm. and not just have some nice talk about what we should do with those bad people over there who are doing bad things to the poor, to the homeless, etc., and not talk about what we as a country and what we as citizens of this country are doing to the people we call bad guys all over the world. So, Krista, I insist on complicating this question and not letting us get away with an easy, just strictly personal one-to-one sort of conversation about this. May I just, uh, yeah, except there is a danger. I I agree with you in theory. There is a danger, however, in taking it so global, so international, that we wash our hands congratulating ourselves on, on our good intentions. There is an immediacy of the problem that requires the immediacy of attention. Uh, without its dilution, or dilution's not the right word. Uh, we need to, what we're here dealing with right here in this country needs more immediate attention, I think, from Christians. The other, it will ripple out. If we do our job here at home, it will ripple out in who we are 
uh, uh, globally. And we, I'm, I'm not saying we should not be concerned. Obviously, we should. I deplore what we've done. I deplore what we've done for the last 15 years, maybe longer than that, uh, internationally. But I don't, uh, we can divert our attention to that which we can't fix in such a way that we don't deal earnestly with that which we can fix. Which is, I think, which Vincent's is right point about keeping place. the conversations in conversation with each other which at all times. Exactly, it's exactly right. right. Um, so let me just ask this big question and maybe start with you, Vincent. Um, if, you could, if you could give a speech to the nation, if you could wave a wand, if you could restart... Uh, I don't want to say our discussion about this, about race, about difference, about how we become a truly multicultural society. Um, I want to say our encounter with this. Um, you know, where would it where would it begin? Where would you what would you plant, and where would you plant it to start fresh, to reframe? I think, Krista, that the historian in me would insist that we become mature human beings and a mature nation rather than a kind of teenage nation by acknowledging how we messed up from the very beginning. And not only messed up ourselves, but messed up all kinds of other people as well, including the people who used to occupy this space. I would say that I would want us and I keep using us, I would want us to acknowledge how we got started and to move then not to guilt and constant talk about guilt, but move then to repentance and try to figure out How do we turn around from the pathway that that got us started on to the pathway of becoming loving children of God? I think that that would be the beginning of the way that I would want to approach this. Look at the history, acknowledge the history, teach the history, and almost in the same breath, ask who will deliver us from this body of death and go at that work then, asking for the help, the grace, the strength, the courage to go in a new direction. That would be my starting point. And again, assuming that we really want to go in a new direction, that it would be easiest in the world just to stay where we are Mm -hmm. and to pat each other over the back at about 
how progressive we are, but to really go towards building a new nation with a whole new set of understandings about what is it that God wants of us, that I think is a conversation that would be of great help to those who call themselves Christian and those who are part of the nation that does not acknowledge that definition at all. And and to me, that does precisely lead back to this question of the Christian voice, the Christian contribution in a new century, in, in, in making a new world. Um, because, again, the reality is that political, that politics uh, and secular culture only really has the vocabulary of positioning, blame, and guilt. So, you know, and Vincent, what I'm thinking of is, I went on a civil rights pilgrimage with your friend John Lewis earlier this year with the Faith and Politics Institute. I think there's some people from Faith and Politics here. It's an extraordinary experience. And one of the things I just began to learn which I never really learned in school, was the gift of nonviolence that that movement made to this country. And I really don't think we have a memory of that now. What I hear you talking about is the gift of repentance that people of faith, the emerging church, could make to this nation. That's work. And it's also a commitment of time, right? It's going to be generations before that kind of uh, that is really come to fruition. It's going to be working generations. Yeah. Not just generations, yeah. but working generations. Commitment to give ourselves fully and deeply to the task of creating something new. Not just assuming that by sitting around, the new is going to come. Yeah. Only as we strengthened by the grace of God, say there must be something new and we must help to embody it and to create it. And it seems to me that as we bring that faith energy to the task, then we have a new kind of situation. What are you thinking over there, Phyllis? Oh, I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying. He's two years older than I, so that means I can he listen is. to him. He's, he's much more mature, it's true. <laughs> he's more mature, I can listen. <laughs> he's yeah. got me taught by two years. <laughs> uh, no, there, I, I agree. I, I would put a caveat or two. Uh, my, my caveat first is that we're post-Christendom. Uh, and that maybe is not a familiar concept to, to everyone, but we're post-Christendom. Uh, in which case, uh, because and of just that, say a little bit about what uh, you mean well, when you say it, that. It, it means that um, basically in in 325, when the church, forgive me, got in bed with the empire, which is exactly what happened, uh, when the church got in bed with the empire, uh, and we called it Constantine, and he was a good lover apparently because we sure liked him, uh, and we stayed with him, and we stayed with him until about 30, 40 years ago, and part of the change we're going through now is we began to lose. Uh, it's it's very dangerous for one's soul to be part of a religion that's socially acceptable. Uh, it, it just really is. And we had 1,700 years of being socially acceptable. And we're just beginning to find out what it means um, to be 
a freestanding voice um, that can speak to the empire. Uh, we don't have to have uh, the president uh, announce who's going to be the pope or to lay hands on the new Archbishop of Canterbury. In England, you still have to have the queen sign off because they're not quite as post-Christian as we are. Um, so we're tracking as two different entities, the politics and, and the Christian body. And increasingly, unless I'm crazy, the Christian body will become more and more of a cohesive thing, making it possible to do much of what Vincent's talking about. And that will come through emergence. There's, there's no question it will. Uh, but I think also we need to understand that what we're repenting for, let's be careful. What we're repenting for is zillions of years of not making every creature we saw a human being. Uh, and so it's not as if uh, the Caucasians or somebody came over here and settled this country uh, in a vacuum. They brought with them the traditions of their culture. They brought with them all of the things that had made them. Uh, and to turn and blame bothers me. Um, it, even, as a woman, to turn and blame men bothers me. Uh, it's not the guy's fault. We, we had a different culture. So I think part of what we have to do is begin by forgiving those who got us in this mess, realizing that it was not their mess. They became the last actualizers of it in many ways, but they were the inheritors of centuries and centuries. And until we can, I think, until we can look with grace at all of history and say, yes, dear Lord, I am so sorry that it was this way. I'm so sorry that my part of humanity did this to that part of humanity. But I understand I'm not going to blame them. They, they too were the victim of a system. Then the question becomes, so how do we make a better system so that our kids, great, 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 great grandchildren don't look back and say, great, 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 great grandpa was a huge sinner. When in actuality, he was the product of who we are and whom we made, who we made it. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, we can, I, it, I'm not a, a feminist. You can't have seven children by the same man and be credible as a feminist. I discovered years ago. It just won't play in Poughkeepsie. <laughs> uh, and so, especially staying with him for 58 years. Um, let me tell you, it takes a lot of imagination. Anyway, has, <laughs> has nothing to do with anything. But, but you can't turn and blame guys for what they did to my great-great-grandma. Uh, because it was a male-oriented society. Mm-hmm. If I were gay right now, I would have to go to my prayer saying, please, God, let me understand that those who... Per- if I were transgendered, I'd be in my prayer booth almost all day long saying, please, God, forgive even the gays and lesbians who are, are denigrating me. You know, uh, and I think what you're saying is, is really important, and, it's, and as I say, it's... it's, it's it's not spoken, right? It's not what you're spoken, saying, it's not popular. Can I say this? What you're saying is not PC. That's right. It's not um, PC at all. I'm sorry. I know it is. But, but no, it's great. But what I want to... So what's the bridge? So you, you, there has to be a forgiveness. You know, and, and Vincent said this. It's not about guilt and blame. It's about repentance. So... so forgiveness. What, and so what's the bridge between the forgiveness of, of that which was, which you, of which you are a part, and... Being a force for a, a, a creating a new world, I don't want a new play reality. Words, but forgiveness involves f- forgiving. Uh, uh, repentance involves what's happening right now and what I'm part of. Forgiveness involves the grace of looking back at that from which we have all come, and say, "Please may it in some way become the ongoing part of the kingdom of God while I'm here." Uh, 
And no, it's not PC, but it truly, as you can tell, it worries me. And why be 80 if you can't say what worries you, right? Uh, there's a certain impunity. Uh, but, but there's a difference between repentance and forgiveness, and there's a difference between those and grace. And I think grace only comes in prayer, but it also comes when both repentance and forgiveness have come into full play. And if we do this thing that Vince is talking about, if we refashion this country, which we're going to do, but if we do it without grace, it will be just as clunky and just as unfortunate and just as many people will get the short end of the stick as has been true in the past. I think our only hope is prayer. We agree in, in, in every way, I think, on that. It's prayer and, and talking, doing things like we're doing right here. And also, I think, maybe talking straight. Let me pick up from my younger sister here. <laughs> he is going to hold that against me. <laughs> no, I'm going to hold it very close to yeah. me. <laughs> okay, that's a deal, brother. <laughs> it's actually two years and ten months. Phyllis said, that, <laughs> Phyllis said that what we are doing here is very important. Yes, it is. I'd like to encourage us, Krista, to recognize that we can't move to new ways unless we're willing to experiment Mm, and try out things that we haven't experienced before. And maybe fail along the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. The willingness to fail is the mark of genius. Right. Because you can't create anything new if you are tied in by this fear of failure. Wild Goose itself is an experiment. The idea of talking about where we might be going together with two old folks (laughs) and somewhat younger folks (laughs) sitting in front of an audience of four or five hundred people, does that work? How is that? Well, we won't know if it works unless we try it. Then after this is over... As I understand it, there's probably going to be a smaller group continuing to wrestle with these issues. I started out this morning at breakfast in a conversation with five people. What I'm trying to say is this. Please do not look for any miraculous, quick answers to how we work towards this new being and new society, which is we need both of these things. We've got to figure out how we work towards them. And I want to encourage you in a way that I was encouraged recently by one of my elders' co-workers in an organization that some of us have begun to put together called the Council of Elders. 
my brother wrote this letter to me and said, Vincent, we need to keep remembering that the great American experiment with building a multiracial democracy is still in the laboratory. We have got to be willing to see ourselves as part of an experiment that is actively working its way through right now. None of us knows the answer fully as to how we do this. We stumble, we hold on to each other, we hug each other, we fight with one another in loving ways, but we keep moving and experimenting and trying to figure it out. I would want more than anything else, Krista, to encourage our sisters and brothers here not to feel that the task is so great that there is nothing we can do, but to recognize that the task is so great that we must be doing everything that we can do. Finding a way, exploring a way, encouraging people to talk about this wherever we are. Not letting people sit down and talk about football and basketball or even church politics without talking about this issue of how do we create a new multiracial nation that is filled with democracy, filled with compassion, and filled with children who are coming up in a new way. How do we take all of those things on consciously, intentionally, making mistakes, and at the same time discovering the beauty that God has in store for us. My own deepest source of strength in this is the word that most of us received from the one that we say we follow when he guaranteed us that if we are willing to hunger and thirst for the right way, for the way of righteousness, if we don't back off, if we don't give up, if we don't look for the easy way, but let the hunger and thirst really drive us, we will be filled. That is what keeps me going. That promise that if I am willing to let the hunger continue to drive my life, the filling is assured. And I have found it in many, many ways to be true, and I'm willing to go with it the rest of my life not backing off, pushing, moving, searching, holding on to others, and seeing 
as the old black song said, seeing what the end will be. And I'm looking forward to that myself right now. Amen. Amen. I'm I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I'm outdoors at the Wild Goose Festival in Hot Springs, North Carolina, today with civil rights veteran Vincent Harding and theologian and author Phyllis Tickle. I had so many other things I wanted to talk to the two of you about, so maybe we just have to do this next year. Um, Yeah? Okay. (laughs) But this was so important. Um, We're minus one elder. We could do three next year. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, I think I want to close just one final question. Um, I want to invoke an image that another great elder of our time, Joan Chittister, gave me. Let's bring a Catholic voice in here. Yes. She likes it to, I, I find great, great hope in this story. She talked about how she often clings to the knowledge that when St. Benedict was alive, was that 5th, 6th century? Is mm, that yes. right? Uh-huh. That the Early. New York Times equivalent of the 5th, 6th century Rome did not have a headline that said, Benedict writes rule. <laughs> you know, it was a little group of crazy people. That's I right. think he was attempted, you know, one of the first communities he founded, they tried to poison him. It did Absolutely. not go well Absolutely. for a lot of it. Subiaco was bad. It did not go well. <laughs> and, you know, this group of outliers, but, though created something that a, a thousand years later helps keep civilization alive. And I love to think about that. And the fact that even I, from my vantage point with a power, you know, with, in media... I do not know what is happening right now in some corner of the world that's going to keep civilization alive absolutely. 50 years from now or 1,000 years from now. However, here, here. the two of you, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and that You're gives right. me hope. You're right. Um, the two of you have lived a long time, and you have a keen eye and ear. And I do want to ask you as we close, you know, is there something you are watching, looking at, or listening for, looking for, that keeps you going, that may not be on all of our radars? Or, you know, where would you want us to direct our attention? One of the things that comes most immediately to my mind, Christia, is the city of Detroit. which up until yesterday morning almost was described to us only in terms of the degradation that was going on there and all the loss and all of the blight. But for reasons that I don't have time to go into now, I have been blessed with the privilege of actually knowing people in Detroit who have been living in hope and who have been convinced that the moment that they are living in now is a moment of great danger 
and at the same time a moment of tremendous opportunity. And so in the midst of the falling apart of Detroit, there are people from a variety of motivations, including deeply spiritual motivations, who are coming together to build on that broken land, to build new settings, to build new institutions, to build new gardens, to build the lives of new children. And they are building a new Detroit in the midst of all of the stuff that we hear about the death of Detroit, life, life, insistent life is growing up in that city. And I am personally deeply encouraged by it and keep looking at it every time I can get a chance to. Thank you. Yeah. Phyllis, what are you looking at? Well, I, um, I think his metaphor of Detroit is absolutely. Uh, I think we can look at the church and look at thousands of groups in pubs and in old yoga clubs uh, and in houses uh, and, yes, uh, all over the world. Uh, There's a meeting in a couple of weeks in Bangkok uh, uh, where emergence folk are coming from around the world for the first time to be able to say, here we are uh, from our various continents. Uh, Huge hope. And and I I I would like to say, if I may... um, uh, part of the hope uh, for this whole thing is the fact that grandparents are here. I love looking out and seeing some white hair without having to look in the mirror to see it. Uh, <laughs> the, the carrying of the tradition. Let's don't forget that, that the, the Abrahamic tradition, the Christian tradition, um, which says that every human being is a human being. And that's the fundamental thing, isn't it? Every human being is a human. I look at you and there is Christ in you or there is a potential Christian in you or there is a flaming Christian in you. How do I know? Uh, but when we treat each other, and, and the third thing is, uh, and I think it's probably the most important, we've had, a, and this takes a long time, and I shan't do that, uh, but we've had a significant shift in the last hundred years as part of the lead up to where we are right now, in which in many ways we are arriving at a completion of the Trinity. From Azusa Street and the coming of the Holy Spirit amongst those people at Azusa Street in, in 1907. Uh, we have had um, the growth of Pentecostalism and uh, of charismatic Christianity, the renewalists they're called, so that in many ways we now engage the Holy Spirit massively and the Holy Spirit engages us massively um, in, in ways that uh, up until now we'd not been able to engage. Corporately we didn't have, but the coming of the Holy Spirit, the, the completion of the Trinity in the everyday practice of everyday Christians is, I think, where it is. I think that's our seed, uh, the thing that is going to really happen. Um, I'm not a Pentecostal, but I'm a great, I'm very aware historically of what happened at Azusa Street, what happened in 1900 um, even uh, in Topeka, Kansas, um, so that um, we, we are in a different time. Our theology is changing as well, or our theology is blooming. It is the same theology we had. It is now blooming and coming into fruition in maturing. Yeah, you both named two uh, very important realities that have never been on the front page of the New York Times. That's right. That there's life in Detroit and that the face of Christianity 
in this century is largely and increasingly Pentecostal. It, it, there are more Pentecostals in the world than there are citizens in the United States. Okay. And if you put Pentecostals <laughs> and renewalists together, they would be the fourth largest religion in the world. So I just want to say in closing that um, sitting with the two of you has been such an important remembering um, that we need our elders. Another, uh, an important piece of truth that this culture forgot, that Western culture forgot. Um, I mean, because, and, and, and just like, I mean, when we talk about creating a more multiracial, multiethnic society, we're talking about becoming more whole. And I think living cross-generationally is also about becoming more whole again. Um, it's been such an honor. So thank you, Phyllis thank Tickle, you. and thank you, Vincent thank Harding, you. and thank you, Wild Goose Festival. Could you folks stay here for a couple of minutes? Thank you. Yeah.